Hello and welcome to episode number four of Therapy. Welcome back. I will not make a big deal about the fact that I have made it to episode four when I was not even sure if I would make it to episode two. I am not going to make a big deal about that because it's not a big deal, but it kind of is. It's exciting to me. It's exciting that people are listening to this. I just want to tell you if you do consistently listen to my episodes, thank you so much. I feel overwhelmingly grateful for anybody that does that, even if you listen to five minutes of it. it's It still counts as a stream according to my Spotify analytics. So, Thank you so much for anybody that's listened. If this is your first time listening, hi. If it's your fourth time listening, because this is episode number four, you're a real one, and thank you so much. Anyway, I am home this week. I am back from Columbus. I am back to having the whole day to choose what I do, which, as I have said before, is both a blessing and a curse because (laughs) I love doing certain things so much and they bring me so much joy that if I'm not careful, I will become so self-indulgent that I do them for way longer than I need to, like my morning routine. My morning routine by definition, should be completed in the morning and should not be more than like, you know, what what's normal for a morning routine? An hour or two? But what happens is I find myself enjoying it so much that sometimes my morning routine is wrapping up around 10 a.m. when it starts at 7 a.m. And, you know... <laughs> that's a bit much. We're verging on afternoon at that point. So anyway, I am back home this week working on disciplining myself and working on being productive, but still enjoying myself. Just trying to find that balance. You know how it goes. I went to Ikea last week. That was pretty fun. Um, I actually went to Ikea twice last week, which is funny because I don't go there very often and whenever I do I am reminded of how much I love it and just a quick hot little tip here I'm not giving a hot tip at the end today so actually let this be the hot tip the hot tip is if you want to do something for a couple hours to maybe kill some time with a friend or just yourself honestly I think I would have a wonderful time doing this myself spend a couple hours at Ikea and just walk around, look at the displays, figure out what color schemes you like. It's fun because when you walk around Ikea, there are so many distractions that it's easy for you to always have something to like talk about or be looking at. But also, you can just walk around and talk to the other person if you want. I always like an activity where you can engage in topics that involve the outside world if you want, but also allow you to have a good conversation with whoever you're just chilling with. So I love Ikea for this reason. 
You don't have to buy anything. Of course, many times I do end up buying things because Ikea has everything that I could ever freaking want. If you're in Cleveland though, you're kind of out of luck because it's like two hours away, which Cleveland is sleeping on Ikea. I don't know what's going on. Um, if you live in Cincinnati, there are two, I'm sure you know this already, within like half an hour. So yeah, hot tip, go to Ikea. And I also wanted to tell you, if you do go to Ikea, I have a couple faves that I got there that I think maybe you would like, or maybe we'll give you like some ideas as to things to get there. So um, the first thing that I got, which I am very passionate about, is my TV tray. And I have never had a TV tray. It's one of those things where I've always said like, oh, that would be nice to have, but of course I never order it. As a newly convert to the TV tray game, there is just nothing quite as luxurious as when I make my food, I sit down on my couch because I do not believe in sitting at tables when you eat. I'm working on it, leave me alone. I sit on my couch, I put my TV tray down, I put my food up there, I put my show on, and I don't even have to sit up straight to eat. My only job is lifting the fork from the TV tray to my mouth, and it's just a really relaxing time. It's a very self-indulgent activity that I think is okay to have once in a while, and by once in a while, personally for me, I mean every night at dinner. Anyway, TV trays, can't recommend it enough. Also, Ikea candles, 10 out of 10 out of 10 out of 10. I love an Ikea candle. They are inexpensive. There are a variety of smells. That's a given, but <laughs> there's a variety of smells. Mine, I like, I'm realizing that as I change, oh, there's a siren, fantastic. Give me one moment. As I get older, like what smells good to me changes. So I used to really like like fruity smells. And then of course I had the vanilla phase. Who doesn't? Thank you, Bath and Body Works. But now I find myself really loving earthy smells. So I got a couple candles that are very earthy and I just, I love the vibes from, a, from an earthy smell. You know what I'm saying? So Ikea candles, can't recommend them enough. Um, also, I got a fake plant, which I am very excited about because I am 100% convinced that if I got a real plant, I would kill it within, you know, however long you're supposed to water the plant in between. If the plant needs watered once a week, I would have the plant for a week and then it would die because I'm not fantastic at taking care of things that are not telling me that they need taken care of. Like I can have pets because they tell me when they need to eat, but a plant, there's no way. So I'm seeing how I do with this fake plant. You know, it's, uh, it's not a big commitment, which I love. It's just chilling there, it looks nice. So this might be my segue into being a plant mom, which is both exciting and intimidating because I feel like if I open that door, I will never be able to walk out of it. But anyway, we're trying to plant. It was like five or 10 bucks, it's super cute. So fake plants from Ikea, highly recommend. 
one more quick thing, two more quick things, really quickly. I got this little house for my cats. I didn't know if they would like it, so I only bought one, which seemed like a good idea, but in reality, I feel like now only one of them can use it, so I feel bad, so I have to go back and get another one. But it's this really cute, just little cube. It was cheap, too. I feel like it was like 10 or 12 bucks, and my cat loves it. A cat's fascination with being inside boxes is something that I do not understand and I really could not find more adorable. So any opportunity I have to put, to allow my cat to climb into a box, I will take. So in this case, that box came from Ikea. It's like, it's like the material of like a tent. So it's not a hard box. It's really nice. And if they rip it apart, which, you know, cats do that, I can go get another one. So it's fine. It was $10. Um, last thing, if you are into Paris, I got the most beautiful canvas there. It's, um, it's, it's basically a picture of Paris in five different phases. It's so beautiful. I was drawn to it immediately. It was like $30. So, I mean, pretty affordable. And um, I love it because it represents like a process. It represents the journey because Paris was not built in a day. So, I hired... <laughs> The Eiffel Tower, LOL, was not built in a day. So, highly recommend IKEA artwork. I know that it is not local. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can tell you I do try to shop local and buy local as much as I can, but sometimes IKEA artwork hits different. Sue me. I don't know. All right, time for some recaroonies. Um, I am a little bit behind on everything. <laughs> Story of my life. Um, but I'm a little bit behind on my shows and my podcast and my movies and anything else simply because I was thrown off my routine last week, which was a beautiful thing, but also I just could not keep up with stuff in the way that I normally do, so my recs are limited. I'm sorry, I will be back and better than ever with more and better recs, but until then, I am watching Ozark. I understand that I am very late to the Ozark game. Ozark has been out there. I believe there's four seasons, but I tried to watch it several times and I never could fully commit. And I still don't know if I'm fully committed or if I'm just watching it because I feel like I need to. Um, I do like it. I'm on episode four. It's one of those shows you have to pay a lot of attention to though, which is a little stressful for me because not only because my mind wanders so much, but because a lot of times when I'm watching shows, I'm not like fully invested. I'll be like kind of on my phone or obviously eating or doing something else. So, you know, you have to pay, it's a show you have to watch and pay a lot of attention to. So if you want something like that, it's, it is really good. I see why people like it so much for sure. Um, so we'll see how far I get. I don't know. Um, you, the Netflix series, comes out today, or it won't be today, it'll have come out yesterday when I release this episode, um, but I mean, that is 100% going to become my priority, so yeah, there's no getting around that. Um, two podcasts that I really, really highly recommend that you listen to are both on Ed Milet's podcast, 
Um, if you're not familiar, he is a personal development speaker and coach, and he has a really popular podcast called The Ed Milet Show. And he had two different interviews within the last couple weeks that were very similar in regards to the conclusions that were drawn, I feel, but the way that he got there with both of the speakers was very different and very interesting. So the first one is Higher State of Mind with John Gordon. And the second one is Change Your Reality with Deepak Chopra. They basically both talked about these ideas of a greater intelligence and like it literally says in the title, a higher state of mind. But the two guests are so different in their approaches. And it was just really fascinating and interesting to see how like two people with such different backgrounds and such different beliefs can still draw the same overall conclusions and it was just like such a nice reminder to me that it's okay to disagree with somebody about some things and still agree on like the big things that are important so yeah and I've wanted to become familiar with Deepak Chopra's work for a while now and listening to that interview was exactly the catalyst that I needed to order the book immediately. So I ordered one of his books. Um, it's called Living in the Light. I haven't started it. I'm a little bit overwhelmed. <laughs> I have like five books here that I've ordered that I need to start and I will get to all of them. Um, I have to find a way to start reading faster. I'm still working on Big Magic, which is still just mind-blowing me every paragraph, which is so exciting. So yeah, those are my only recs, though. Ozark, not a hot take. Um, and the Ed Milet Show, Higher State of Mind with John Gordon and Change Your Reality with Deepak Chopra. All right. Well, I am so excited to share with you my first interview, my first guest that I have had on Therapy. And the cherry on top is that it is with a friend of mine that was so insightful and so interesting and just brought such great perspectives. I am so excited for you to hear them and I'm so happy that I'm able to share them with you. I had a really fun time recording this. It's honestly a huge learning curve learning how to do interviews. I have so much respect now for podcast hosts that interview people because it's challenging, but I am so grateful that it that I got to do my first interview with someone that is just so easy to talk to, so easy to piggyback off of conversationally, and someone I just had a really good time with and a super fun conversation with that I think you are going to love. So, without further ado, adieu, please enjoy my conversation with Malik Clover. All right, a native of Atlanta, Georgia, Malik began studying violin at the age of 11. He currently holds a position with the Columbus Symphony Orchestra and has performed throughout the U.S., Canada, and Italy. Last year, he completed his Master's of Music at University of Cincinnati College Conservatory as a fellow through Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra's prestigious diversity fellowship program. 
During his time at CCM, he performed regularly with the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra and as a soloist with CCM's Philharmonia after being selected as a winner of the highly competitive concerto competition. He also holds a degree from Columbus State University Schwab School of Music. Please welcome my friend, the incredible Malik Glover. Hello, hello. Hello. Good to be here. So, me and Malik are actually both playing in Columbus this week, Mm -hmm. so we got to spend a little more time together, and we know each other from school. Mm -hmm. We both went to um, CCM for our master's, and then we both left, even though we thought about (laughs) doing our artist diploma. Malik, how are you? I'm doing okay. Yeah, it's good to be here. Yeah. Um, happy to talk about, you know, the things we're about to talk about. So yeah. let's get into it. So tell us a little about where you're from and how you got here. Uh, so I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I was born and raised there. And um, basically getting into music, uh, I started off, violin was the only instrument that I learned initially. Uh, I started in middle school orchestra when I was in sixth grade. I was 11 years old. And it was just, you know, kind of a regular middle school uh, elective that you could take, orchestra, band, or chorus. So I chose orchestra, actually 15, I remember 14, I was 14, when um, my uh, teacher, my high school teacher, uh, introduced me to this program called the Talent Development Program, which is an educational program um, created by the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. What it's supposed to do is, um, it's a program dedicated towards uh, uh, students uh, who are learning classical music in underrepresented communities, so uh, African Americans or uh, people who identify as Black, uh, um, also uh, Hispanic Latinx students. After I auditioned for that program and I was admitted, they uh, provided free private lessons uh, in my last three years of high school. Uh, so I met my first private teacher when I was 15. Um, and he was uh, now associate concertmaster of Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, Justin Bruns. Wow. And, uh, I didn't know that you you started lessons at fifteen. Yeah. It was... Okay, for people that are not musicians, that's kind of late. It's to pretty st- late. Yeah. Yeah, like the fact that you're doing this now is amazing. So like like I started violin lessons when I was five, mm-hmm. which is a pretty, like five to seven is when most people start. I feel mm-hmm. like pretty standard. Yeah. So just to interject that Malik is like a superhuman. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway. Um, yeah, no, I, uh, my, my teacher was not, uh, shy about letting me know, like, kind of the timeline of, like, what my colleagues, yeah, uh, was going through at the time, um, and, you know, he admitted that it was pretty late, but if it was something that I was willing to put forth effort to do, that he was also willing to, you know, put forth equal amount of effort to yeah. help my development, so it was a lot, of, it was a very intensive, uh, uh, portion of training, my last three years of high school when, um, you know, I was just taking lessons for the first time. Yeah. So how hard, so you started this development program that the, that Atlanta Symphony has when you were, uh, I was 15. I was in uh, 10th grade. So So how hard was, I was looking some stuff up about it and it looks like they accept a limited number of people, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, now it's 25. I don't know what right. it was then. I believe it was somewhere around the same number, maybe 20 to 25, uh, maybe even a little bit less. But um, you did have to go through an audition process um, to be admitted into the program. Uh, of course, you had to be playing 
and demonstrate uh, uh, some type of proficiency in your uh, target instrument. Um, and they admit people, uh, the oldest you can be admitted into the program is 15, uh, a rising sophomore wow. in high school. So I, I guess I just made the cut. That's when I discovered the program in the first place. Okay. Uh, so I kind of lucked out in, you know, kind of getting in there yeah. the last second I could get in there. It so benefited. had you auditioned for it before and this was your last chance? Um, no, I never knew about the program before. Um, actually my middle school teacher did tell me about it when I was, uh, I think I was 13 um when I was in eighth grade and I was like uh that doesn't sound like something I want to do <laughs> and then it was it turns out it was the same teacher uh the year afterwards and she was like no you actually have to do this like this is not really an option for you you need to have this type of training so, that is great though yeah. someone saw that yeah and was like you need to do this yeah she was looking out for me for sure yeah she, I mean without that push honestly without that program I can't guarantee myself a spot in you know having a career in classical music in the first place yeah just need that development uh early on maybe sometimes even earlier on um yeah especially in your adolescence before you go to college before things start to get a little bit complicated in all aspects of life you need that training so so how hard do you think it is getting into a program like that like were you up against a lot of people was it like how competitive was it because it sounds like if you can get into this program it's like a very um like it does a lot of good it sounds Mm -hmm. like it really propels you forward but actually getting into it like do you know how competitive it is it was fairly competitive so i remember uh there were good number of people at my audition it was so long ago so I can't pinpoint yeah. like how many but uh I remember uh the way it worked uh, I auditioned it was at the end of the school year uh, my freshman year of high school and there were a good amount of people there and then I remember for I think they admitted four people total for my year so but for my studio my violin studio I think my teacher was trialing three different prospective students so we had uh we each had three trial lessons with him um just to see how well we worked together who would make the most progress in between lessons who was already at a good level to be learning quickly um yeah and i was very lucky that he ended up choosing me to be the yeah. one in his uh studio and then other than me there were uh there was a, a violist a harpist and a double bassist so us four. oh so one violinist one violinist wow uh, I'm just asking because I feel like the idea of it is amazing. Like, obviously, you got in there and it sounds like you had a lot of financial assistance. Mm -hmm. But the process of actually getting in there, it seems like, is difficult. It's tricky for sure. You definitely, definitely some work beforehand is required uh, to (laughs) practice. You know, I was lucky to have my high school teacher work with me for the audition process. She was, uh, she knew what the audition process was going to look like, uh, that they asked for two contrasting, um, works that you would perform in front of a panel. Uh, so, so I'm sorry. I have to, what are you playing at this point? You haven't had lessons. What are minuet and gavotte? Honestly. What are your contrasting works? Um, I remember playing, uh, I was doing the accolade violin concerto. Okay. uh, But that's still, 
impressive to do with no lessons. Yeah, it was. I remember That's that hard. that concerto was not easy, especially. It's right now everyone considers it a student concerto. So, yeah. Uh, so it's not really considered the highest level, but at the time, I remember. It was a piece of work. Like, yeah. it was not the easiest thing to put together, especially with my experience. Yeah, for anybody that isn't like a non musician, this is pro at the Accolade Violin Concerto is probably something you would typically learn like with a teacher three years into mm -hmm. playing or something. So Malik just like learned this on <laughs> his own yeah. and played it just to give people context. Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. So, okay. So growing up in Atlanta, um, I was doing a little research about the population and the demographic there. So Atlanta is like 30% black. Mm -hmm. So growing up in Atlanta, did you feel like you were around a lot of black musicians, like either going to the orchestra or the people you worked with? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, it's, it's actually really, uh, it's, it's, a, it's really complex to talk about just because I went to, um, from the time I was little to uh, actually my, all my years in public school, I went to predominantly black high school, middle school, elementary school. So I was around black people all the time. That was just, you know, what I grew up with. Yeah. Um, so, of course, people in my school orchestra, uh, if there was a county honor orchestra, it would be mostly black. However, I noticed when I was doing things um, a little bit higher level, like, for example, if I were to do youth orchestra, if I were to do uh, all state, something kind of in a more greater Atlanta area that would incorporate different parts of Atlanta and maybe just surrounding that area, I would notice that there would be less people that would look like me. There would yeah. be, uh, there'd be some people that maybe from my school that were more advanced, but for the most part, it would be, um, non-black people that would be in those spaces and more advanced spaces like youth orchestras or all state orchestra. Um, something that involves a kind of a wider, uh, space. Yeah. And to give you, like, some context, to give everyone listening some context of orchestras. So, in 2014, the black representation in orchestras was 1.4%. Mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> is... And then, according to another study, in 2018, it was 1.8%. And to compare it, the Hispanic representation is 2.5%. So, it's, like, half of that. Yeah. So did seeing, so did going to orchestras and being in orchestras and not being around a lot of people that looked like you make you feel differently about going into the field? Yeah, well, so for me, it was a mixture of things. I felt definitely in my adolescence when I was experiencing this change in, you know, demographics, whenever I was doing something a little bit more advanced in music, uh, it was a little bit frustrating because, uh, for a few reasons. One, I was, uh, I was frustrated for my friends who mm. felt like they didn't really, you know, have a chance to get into those spaces. Um, and that's really because, you know, they weren't as fortunate able to get, you know, that training that yeah. I was able to get at that time. You know, if I was not going through the training I was going, you know, having the private lessons, um, I would be exactly where they are too. Yeah. Like, you know, you need, it's, it's nothing about just competency or just, um, or intellectual, you know, uh, anything like that, but, or intellect, 
but you need that uh you just need that training you need that yeah. time you need that attention um and violin um anything music related but especially violin is not something that you can just pick up and just surpass everybody without that hands-on uh work from somebody else yeah so, um so i was frustrated for my friends because i felt um uh, i could def- definitely empathize because i was in that situation when i was getting older um uh, you know, I am, I would say I'm kind of a stubborn person. So I would, I was uh, just going through, kind of persevering through this, this change. And I was saying, well, if there's not that many people that can do this, you know, not too many black people or African Americans um, who can do this, I will be one to, to try to represent all of us. Yeah. You know, I, I always remember going to Atlanta Symphony Orchestra concerts and being frustrated that there were not too many, there were no black people actually in the orchestra until I, I believe 2016. And even in Atlanta. Yeah. Wow. Um, in 2016, there were. I remember my entire time in high school, I did not see one black person on that stage. Uh, so I wanted to be that person when I grew up. To, yeah. You know, to help represent and also just be a face on stage for someone in the audience. Well, I think that's amazing because when I was asking like if it made you feel a certain kind of way, I think I thought you would maybe more say like, it made me feel like I didn't belong. And maybe there, maybe even on a subconscious level, there was a little bit of that, Mm -hmm. but it sounds like you were more like, okay, this is the way it is. Let me change it. Yeah. Which is, and when you said you're stubborn, I, (laughs) I do kind of feel that. And I feel that even like listening to you at your recital. <laughs> like I don't, <laughs> I don't want to say you're like a stubborn player, but I feel a lot of like emotion and conviction when you play. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if part of the reason for that is because you started from a place of like, hey, I am going to change this. And mm-hmm. I feel like I just, I feel that in your playing. Oh yeah, thank you, you for that. Yeah. yeah, do you feel like and for anyone that doesn't know, I watched Malik's recital, um, master's recital last year, mm-hmm. and it was just, there is a certain style in the way you play. It's a little like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's like in your face, yeah. you know? And so do you feel like these, these kind of obstacles and things you've had to get through, do you feel like it's shaped the way you interpret things musically too and even on like in the way you create things i think so yeah there's there's a lot of you know answers possible answers for that uh i I would say one is that definitely going through um uh high school but especially college there were a lot of moments where i felt like i did have to prove myself because there were there are a lot of instances where i can tell people before they even heard me play um just kind of already assume that I am a very low level player. Um, whether or not that would be the case is unfair to the person who is being accused of that just because mm-hmm. you don't know that person is really just based off of looks. Yeah. So I felt like definitely um, that developed more and more as I felt like I had to prove myself. Yeah. But also, I mean, I, you know, when you think about why of course we we can probably talk about this later too but like when you think about diversity in classical music i feel like it's important because people from different backgrounds different ethnicities different races have their own 
uh, interpretation of what classical music should be like. Yeah. We have different personalities, different cultures, different tastes in music that we, you know, gravitate towards. And what's so exciting about putting all of that together is that you get to see different people's perspectives based off of their culture or their background. Uh, and that's kind of how they incorporate that into their performance. Yeah. So I just feel like um, from my background, the things I went through and also just the type of person I am, uh, just uh, personally, I try to mix that into the way I perform as much as possible to make it, because that's just the person I am. Yeah. Just to make it a genuine performance. Yeah. And to take that a step further, I do feel like we're all trying to bring something different to the table, you know? And so when you have an orchestra where there's a hundred different or 60 different people bringing something to the table, like you want to have representation from people, from Mm -hmm. a bunch of different people. And so when it is like, when everybody looks the same or is from like a similar background making this music, I think it's like missing something. Yeah. And I think that like, that's another problem. Like it's not just that people aren't, it's not, it's not just that when there's a lack of diversity in orchestra, I feel like people that are watching are robbed and people that, you know, um, pe- minorities are not playing like that's a problem but taking it one step further I think having a lot of different people you bring different things to the table and the music quality actually just isn't going to be as good exactly. when there's not as many like opinions mm-hmm. so <laughs> okay. I fully agree yeah no this is important to it, sh- it shouldn't be um, classical music performance doesn't need to be this this being where, oh, let me put on my tuxedo and perform in front of rich people. Like, you know, it needs to be something that's accessible, something that's relatable um, for the audience and the musicians. Um, And, you know, it needs to be a more homogenous uh, entity of what we can uh, just put together and present. It doesn't need to be something, you know, if we don't have that, it it can become stiff or stale and just sometimes not interesting yeah uh but you know i I just love even outside of music just getting to know different opinions different personalities different backgrounds different cultures and i mean music is no different we need that combination just to you know increase the level of the performance yeah for sure um So we talked a little bit about your career obstacles that you've had to get through. And obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously, I feel like you're just getting into like the development program probably maybe pales in comparison into getting into like the diversity fellowship, Mm -hmm. which you did when you were 22. Uh, I think it was 23. Yeah. Yeah. So how much, what obstacles did you feel like you had to overcome auditioning and getting into that? Mm-hmm. Which for, I mentioned it in the intro, but, and we can talk about this a little bit more too. Um, actually, maybe tell us a little bit about like the diversity fellowship with CCM and kind of your experience getting into it. Yeah. So the CSO CCM diversity fellowship is a, um, is a dual fellowship um, that is an educational program. Uh, created by University of Cincinnati's College Conservatory of Music and the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. So what it is, um, is it's a graduate program with CCM, 
and uh, you're obtaining a degree either in Masters of Music or an Artist Diploma, which is a performance certificate. Um, and you're also playing with the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. It's a really, uh, it's, it's similar to the talent development program where it's only um, uh, open to students that identify as, uh, as black or uh, Hispanic, Latinx. Uh, it's, it's also a very competitive process. You know, a lot of people want that experience. Yeah. A lot of people need that experience just to have a chance when they uh, start auditioning for orchestras looking for a job. Um, so I remember that was, you know, probably just equally as difficult uh, yeah. to get into, uh, if not more, because, you know, these are, this is an actual job at, yeah. at this point, you know, it's education, but it's also, you know, you're getting career experience, career development experience, uh, and we're older, so we, you know, this is, it's almost a little, I would say it's equally, if not more important. Yeah. Well, yeah, it can be pivotal in your career. I think now there's a lot more of these orchestras with like diversity programs and stuff. I know more schools do it. Do you feel like that is helping to solve the problem a little bit? Or what are your thoughts on it? I think they're, they're essential for, for the time we're in now. Yeah. Um, we're we're in a time where we're starting to realize um where at least more people are starting to realize the importance of uh accessibility to minorities in classical music is it solving the issue i wouldn't say it is because the only reason i say so is because uh at least for this uh example the the ccm uh, cso diversity fellowship it's it's an it's a graduate program it's a graduate fellowship you're yeah. going to be older when you do it and I feel like you need to have this development and this education when you're younger, in your adolescence, yeah. when you're like, you know, when you're even before 10 years old, um, this training is essential. So if you want to solve the issue, you have to target the youth. Mm -hmm. You have to make it accessible to them to play at a higher level. So uh, to, you know, to uh, retain more students, to give them a chance uh, to their um colleagues or uh, their friends who are not people of color uh, who might have a, maybe a stronger chance to them just based off of um, certain aspects of their life yeah um, yeah and I think it's easy to I was asking you like how hard it is to get into the program you did with your when you were younger because I think it's easy for someone to look at that and say oh well you know they are targeting the the younger people but in reality that was there was one violin accepted that year. Like clearly it is not accessible. Mm -hmm. and, and you and you are also kind of an outlier in that you got in when you were that age. Mm -hmm. So so you think more of the solution is going basically further back to when you're younger and starting people off. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um it's is it's a very tricky um I wouldn't, I would definitely be lying if I said I have a concrete solution of how yeah. to fix it, but I know what the, the characteristics of the solution needs to look like, and it's targeting students at a, at a younger age, making it more accessible, because the difference in a lot of uh, students uh, of color, uh, which is widely speaking, of course, there are always going to yeah. be exceptions, um, but there's a relationship between um, race and socioeconomic yeah. uh, status a lot of times yeah and if you're in a lower tax bracket you, mm -hmm. you don't have um, enough money to 
make ends meet. Um, uh, that's definitely how my family was operating when I was younger. Definitely something along the lines of, um, you know, learning classical music, learning violin is not an option. Yeah. Um, it's so expensive to learn. I, my my teacher who uh my teacher in high school I can't even remember how much I rem- I, th- I remember seeing, uh he had another student who uh who paid to have lessons with him I remember seeing a check that he got from uh his student and I was like people spend that much money <laughs> well first of all I was like people have this money to spend yeah. just every week on lessons yeah. it can be like over a hundred dollars. Um, for one for a one hour session yeah um and to do this every week people you know people some people have the money to do it yeah but unfortunately a lot of people don't have the money to do that and you know naturally people who do have the money are going to excel faster they're going to have mm-hmm. more experience they're going to have more hands-on training and they're just going to have a stronger chance of landing a career yeah. in this already competitive field yeah well this is the tricky thing about the i mean i'm sure there's other fields like this but the music field in particular it's like it's like the arts version of like skiing like we were yeah. talking about how like snowboarding snowboarding and skiing like that's a rich kid sport yeah like doing music that is a like rich kid thing mm-hmm. and so when i asked you like what do you do you think these programs these diversity programs and stuff are helping you're you're basically going back to like it's helping kind of like further on but you have to just keep getting back to like the root Mm -hmm. and the root is that a big part of the root is that minorities just don't have the money and the funds to be able to do this like just to compare our experiences I I started taking lessons when I was really young my parents paid for it every week and that was like I mean, I was privileged in that they could do that. If my parents didn't have the money to do that, I, you know, I wouldn't have been doing that. Mm -hmm. So just to compare like how much harder it was for you to want to do it, to like actually make a career out of it. Yeah. It's just such a, it's such a difference between us. So. Yeah. And if, you know, there's always going to be exceptions and, you know, not one race is going to be the exact same. Yeah. But, um. It tends to be a pattern, but uh, we just we have to find a way to make it more accessible for yeah. everybody. It's a tricky concept, just because you know it does cost money. You yeah, know, you have to. You're you're talking about professionals who are going to teach these people, and you know a lot of times they have to protect their own time. They have yeah. to protect their own you know energy and their career too. So you know, not to say that they should be doing this for free, but there needs to be more programs and more opportunities just for you know for students to be included yeah that was the biggest difference between me and and my friends who I grew up with playing music is I was included and they weren't yeah you know and and I I really see the big difference now because what happens is if you're not included in something chances are you're not going to continue to do it you no one likes to be in a space where they feel like they don't belong or they're not proficient in, or they just don't feel like, you know, they can make a difference. Yeah. I feel like, um, you know, we're we're sitting here trying to brainstorm solutions, and we've recognized that that it's a problem. Do you feel like, in the interactions that you've had within the music field, do you feel like people 
genuinely and truly like are recognizing that it's an issue now? I think so. I think, you know, especially in the last five and 10 years, um, we're starting to see kind of the impacts of, you know, um, of like, oh, wow, there's actually really, you know, talented individuals who who are young. Um, but they might just not have the resources, you know, Mm -hmm. you need the resources to do this. So, um, I think we're starting to understand kind of the impact of, okay, we need to somehow provide the opportunity. So, you know, they, you know, this person has a lot of potential, um, but unless they have this opportunity, these resources, yeah, how do we do that? yeah. Yeah. So. Do you feel like you have personally experienced racism within the field, within or I mean, it doesn't even have to be within the classical music field, but I am curious about that specifically. Mm-hmm. I've been very lucky to say uh, I haven't really experienced racism, uh, especially in recent years. The only thing I would say that I've experienced is um, just the, uh, an assumption uh, that I'm a low-level player. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can tell uh, it, this mainly happens in school. And uh, unfortunately, from both students around your age and teachers, you know, they'll, they'll just assume when you have this kind of a wide variety of students, you just assume and, and you know, just to say, you know, there's a correlation in just the level because of, you know, what they were able to access before, you know, that that can be argued. But just to assume and not to give like the benefit of the doubt that the uh, student has like a lot of potential, they have a lot of things to offer, is unfair to the student and the teacher because you're kind of neglecting, yeah. you know, what could possibly be in front of you. Yeah. Um, I would say I experienced that many, many times in high school and undergrad. Not so much, luckily, in um, in uh, when I came to CCM. I feel like, you know, CCM was a very welcoming, inviting school. Yeah. So we didn't really... Uh, I never experienced that at least, but when I was younger, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope that also, um, like something I'm seeing in this conversation is that I've heard, I've heard people say, some people say, which I think is a crazy thing to say, but I have heard people say, oh, well now there's these diversity programs and stuff that specifically want black people or minorities. So now it's actually like, so now it's easier for them than other people mm-hmm. <laughs> to yeah. get a job in this, which is such baloney to yeah. me. I mean, I have my own thoughts on why it's baloney, but like, I hope that it's kind of, it's being made very clear to me, like how silly that is. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you've ever, have you ever had people like say that? Yes, like, actually. <laughs> yeah. I, I was very surprised that that was, you know, even a thought. Yes. Um, and for them yeah. to even like address it to me was yeah. kind of a step further. But I, I have had some people uh, come to me and even tell me that, um, you know, there there are, a, keep in mind, a very small number of these resources, like opportunities. Yes. Um, but uh, they would come to me like, well, you have something, you have this and then you have that. Like, uh, that's kind of racist itself. That's kind of unfair. <laughs> and I was like, this was never fair to begin yeah. with. Like, Quite honestly, yeah. like you know, and that's unfortunately that's just the way it is. But you know what? What people who are who create these organizations, well, excuse me, organizations and um and resources, um, they're trying to balance the playing field. Yeah. But 
to be honest, this was never a fair game in the first place. Yeah, I mean, the fact that we even have to have these programs is proof enough that it's an issue without mm-hmm. overthinking it. But, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so I do want to talk a little bit about your playing. Okay. So, I, so you mentioned earlier that one of the... One of the reasons that it was hard for you to see orchestras without a lot of diversity is because it actually made you empathize with your friends. And I think this idea of empathy goes very much hand in hand with imagination because you do have to imagine yourself in a scenario outside of yourself. And I've been thinking a lot about the relationship between empathy and creativity and a lot of the musicians that I have met and I'm close with I have noticed that they are very in touch with like that they are able to empathize and they do are in touch with their emotions and I would love to hear if you think that there's a relationship between how when we play we have to like think outside of ourselves and kind of dig deep really Mm -hmm. and imagine ourselves in different scenarios and in the same way um in order to empathize and try to solve some of these problems you have to think outside of yourself and um imagine yourself in different scenarios and I just wonder if you feel like that correlation has manifested itself in your playing at all or how you create things. Yeah, yeah. That was a long question. No, no, no. That's it's no it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I, I feel like um in order to give a genuine performance anytime you have to allow yourself to be vulnerable. Yeah. Um in many directions. So you have to be vulnerable with yourself. Like are you do you feel like you've connected with the music at this point to yeah. just be able to deliver it? Um are you vulnerable enough to to present it in front of the audience mm-hmm. and, and show your connection with the audience through this medium, which is, you know, your performance. Um, and also, you know, I, I like to try to understand what the composer was thinking, how he was feeling, he or she was um, feeling at the time they were writing this because, you know, composers are, um, they're artists just like everyone else. They're, they're poets, uh, they're songwriters, they're, you know, they're painters. They, they have, this is just their medium. You know, they, they decide to release their emotion through their, uh, through the writing of music. Yeah. Um, so I feel like it's important to at least consider what they were possibly thinking when they were writing it. Um, I like to think of all those things, but I, I feel like a performance is just you being vulnerable in so many aspects. Yeah. Um, of course, you know, it's, it's about preparing for it. It's about, um, learning the notes, uh, good rhythm, good intonation, um, good sound, all those basic things. Those are all going to be given. But I feel like if you want to make it a genuine performance, I love when I can tell, you know, the person, the performer has just well connected with the piece. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're not afraid of, of just being themselves yeah yeah and I really feel that in your playing and that's what I yeah that's why I was asking you about it because when I heard you play last year I didn't I didn't really overanalyze it too much I was just like 
he's very confident and has like a what is it pizzazz <laughs> <laughs> like i don't know you just have a it, there's like kind of a like a confidence and a conviction you play with and when i was kind of like researching for this and thinking about this stuff i was like i feel like part of the reason is because you are you have done a lot of empathizing and you have done a lot of putting yourself in different situations and like you said before you do have this kind of like you feel like you need to prove something mm -hmm. a little bit okay the other thing about this that i wanted to say is i also feel like when we are practicing we're always in like a or we're typically in a problem solving mode mm -hmm. so and that's partially why i think practicing is so exhausting is because you are like yeah. trying to fix something the whole time mm -hmm. and i just wonder if i do feel like like you said within the classical within the music field we haven't fixed the problem and you know hopefully we're on the way but it does seem like it's something that's being addressed and it seems like a problem that we're trying to solve right. and i wonder if if people that are in these fields where you do explore creatively more and do um and you are more in touch with your imagination if you're all if you're also used to using that part of your brain where you problem solve and you kind of fix things mm -hmm. do you think musicians kind of being in that state of mind could maybe be the reason why we are trying to find solutions to things possibly you know we're like you said, we're always trying to fix an issue. And it's, yeah. It's always going to happen in a practice room whenever we're preparing for an audition or a performance or uh, a recording of, or something of that sort. So I think, you know, we, we have, it's a mixture of that and just a mixture of the people who are noticing the issue that we're going through right now. Um, and just figuring out ways to address it, figuring out ways to we, we can make it more accessible. You know, you talk about how Problem solving is an essential part of practicing. Yeah. I remember when I was younger, uh, this is actually, I feel like problem solving is a skill that you learn to do um, through assistance, through your teacher. Yeah, yeah. Um, I practiced for many, many hours uh, before I had a teacher and even some years after I had a teacher, um, just not knowing how to practice. Mm -hmm. Knowing how to practice it's something that's not really talked about too much, but that separates people from a well prepared, a well prepared performance, uh, and a not so well prepared performance is yeah. knowing how to solve the problem. Uh, it doesn't always correlate into uh, how many hours you spend in the practice room just playing the instrument. Yeah. You can have uh, one person who has five hours of practicing, um, and uh, the other person has another five hours but they're not really practicing efficiently. Yeah, It's going to be two different performances yeah. for sure. Uh, I've been, I've done both. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, I, I want to say like all of us have, have done our portion of both. Yeah. You know, we, we, we see the results of like, and we, we go through this, you know, this, this trial and error, like what will work, what, what, what will not work. But, you know, also just to be taught that process, you know, we're, uh, I think we're we're starting to get that, have more involvement in just teaching people how to practice yeah. too. And I think it's worth mentioning that practicing in this sort of like, okay, I'm going to practice for five hours. 
even though it's a lot of time, it is actually easier in mm-hmm. some ways. It's a little bit easier to kind of shut off that part of your brain where you have to like think more critically and try to problem solve. And I think it's an interesting thing to compare it to like problem solving on a bigger scale, like with this stuff we've been talking about, <clears throat> because it is it does require a lot more of you and it does require you to like search more and it is more difficult. Mm -hmm. Tell us what is next for Malik. What is next? So so what I'm doing right now is uh, I'm uh, in the middle of a one year contract with Columbus Symphony. Um, And we will see what will happen. It's, you know, it's possible that they will renew it. Um, But if not, you know, yeah, uh, we will, uh, the plan before, uh, I was fortunate enough to get this job was to freelance yeah. um, and just to see what opportunity will jump out next. Yeah. Um, so um, just being fresh out of school, it's, you know, there's a lot of options while you're young. Um, so it'll be fun to explore whatever happens next. Yeah. So, so long-term plan is playing violin in some form. Mm-hmm, yeah. For sure. <laughs> I would say uh, at, at the end uh, of this journey, I do want to have a job where... Um, you know, I have a more secure orchestra job yeah. long term. You know, around our age, it's it's hard to to land something like that. Yeah. Um. So it'll just take some. Yeah, I mean, uh, for anyone that's not familiar with auditions, I don't know what the average is, but sometimes you have to take thirty yeah. auditions. Which, if you're taking one every couple months, I I'm not sure what that math is, but it's, it's not. It takes right. years. Yes, yeah, it's, it's not yeah. fun math. <laughs> Uh, it takes years yeah. for, for most people. Um, it's the slow, it's the slow game mm-hmm. music. Yeah. It's just, it's such a competitive, uh, field. Just the fact that, you know, many times, uh, orchestras will maybe have one position, um, open for yeah. the, you know, that they're willing to, to hire and you will have hundreds of people yeah. coming from around the, uh, the country, even internationally. Yeah. To, um, to be auditioning for that spot. Um, and as, as even sometimes they will not hire anybody. Yeah. You would think, you know, for hundreds of people, uh, there would be like, you know, talent that will, uh, that they have demonstrated that's high enough mm-hmm. to be qualified for that position. And sometimes they still don't even hire people. Yeah. So, you know. It's crazy to think too, like I'm looking at these statistics like the fact that it's one 1.8% is black representation and then if you think about no matter what you look like the odds of getting a job it's already like so slim mm-hmm. and then like you add on the socioeconomic factors that just make it next to impossible yeah well not for you but. <laughs> <laughs> it's but. it's just so much more challenging yeah like, you know uh for me you know uh it was just a game of just catching up. Yeah. Um, you know, for some people, uh, it would be about just learning the fundamentals. Yeah. It would be about, like, you know, do I fit into this field? And some people who are much, much more advanced, they're just waiting on when that when they will land that job, when they yeah. will su- have that successful audition. Um, so it's, it's different for everybody, but, you know, it's, it's really tricky just to uh, address because at the end of the day, um, no matter what your race is, what your background is, you have to sound good. Oh, um, yeah. So it's, you know, what what do you, what needs to happen for you to sound good? Well, you need the resources, you need the time, you need the attention, you need the hands-on training. You also need the drive. Like, there's so many factors and to the people who 
who land these jobs, full-time jobs, and they just, you know, they have these jobs for years and years and years. Yeah. Um, that it's necessary to adopt no matter your race. But just if you don't have the resources, it's, you know, it's, it's harder, but it's just a matter of, like, how can we provide these resources for them to be able to do something like this? Yeah, for sure. All right, fantastic. We are going to do some rapid-fire questions. All right. All right. <laughs> no peeking. Uh, right. <laughs> okay, so the first one that I would love to know is if you have a morning routine, and if you do, what it looks like. My morning routine. Ooh, it's different every morning. Uh-oh. Uh, that doesn't sound very routine. No. <laughs> Uh, it's not much of a routine actually. So if I have to wake up early, um, I will get out of bed the last second (laughs) and take a shower and then be on my way. If I have a more relaxed morning, um, you know, I'll get up. I I love to make breakfast is my favorite thing to make. Um, my favorite meal to make. Um, you know, I try to, uh, just get in touch with people I haven't talked to in a while, like my family, try to call my mom. Like I'm always behind talking to my mom um and it's just some you know uh, logistical things i need to do like send some emails i'll do that yeah but um but you're a night owl oh for so, sure 100 yeah. percent. i love staying up at night yeah um it's just so much more uh for me i just feel like it's more uh hmm that's when you're like in your zone more. Yeah, definitely yeah. more in my zone. It's I feel like it's more efficient for me to do things at night just because my mind is so active at night. I know it's a lot different from how a lot of people function. Yeah, it's cool though. But, Malik practices until one thirty a.m. Yeah, <laughs> I just I love the middle it. Middle of my night. Yeah, <laughs> some people are halfway through REM, yeah. the REM cycle. But you're halfway through paganating. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay. Um. All right. Give us one recommendation, any, it can be a book, it can be a show, it can be a supplement, Mm -hmm. just something where you're like, do this. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, It's tough. It is tough. But one thing, (laughs) actually, this is not too hard. I would say a lot of people know kind of, they have their field, they know what they want to spend most of their time doing, they want to concentrate on this. Um whether it's uh, their career or, uh, of course, something work-related, sometimes a relationship, I would say do something outside of your main, main life focus that's unrelated to those things that are fun for you. And it can be something that is uh, that you do with other people. Okay. But, like, something that's... Like Mario Party? Like Mario Party, <laughs> Mario Kart, all the Marios. But something that's uh, that you love to do um that's unrelated i feel like it refreshes you um and it gives you kind of more you're you come back rejuvenated to do what you're focusing on in the first place and it doesn't it becomes uh less mundane less routine yeah you know so just be more refreshed uh all around i think that's well i have two things to say about that the first one is i feel like it's especially important for musicians because for a lot of like quote unquote normal people, mm-hmm. they would use something like music as yeah. kind of a, an escape from what they do. But our like our whole job is doing something that's kind of 
you know, it's a lot of creative energy. Mm-hmm. It's it's really fun, but yeah. And then the second thing is, what is that for you? Ooh. Okay. So, I've always okay. I've always loved to play video games. So that's that's nothing new for me. Um, uh, I've always just you know liked to play video games with my brothers or video games with my friends. Uh, so that's something I do. That's not nothing music related at all. Yeah. But recently, I've been watching so uh, a lot of cartoons I watched as a child. Uh, I'm rewatching those uh, those cartoons, but in French. <laughs> so nice. it's it's actually it's really entertaining. Are you like, learning French? Uh, I learned French when I was in high school, uh, a little bit before actually, um, and then I had friends that spoke French. Wow. Um, bonjour. So, uh, bonjour. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so uh that's been really interesting like you know you get a sense of uh different culture yeah like you know different the jokes are a lot different (laughs) like yeah you know uh and it's just it's just a fun pastime you're kind of working another part of your brain yeah yeah have you been to france i haven't i've been to montreal uh, but i do want to go to france it's yeah. Paris was my favorite place. Really, I've ever been. I do. Yeah. I really want to go to to uh, to uh, uh, Paris. Yeah, it oh. seems really awesome. Kind Montreal was fun too. You know, it's, it's a bilingual city. Um, like Canada. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, in uh, Montreal, Quebec. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's a really really vibrant city. Uh, that I want to go to uh, again, you know, maybe I would even study there at McGill University. Mm. Uh, who knows what the future will bring? But uh, and you spent some time there. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I went there. Uh, I went to Canada a few times. I went to Montreal once, and that was that was really fun. I really want to go back as soon as possible. So awesome! And I will say about the video game portion, just to toot my own horn for a second. So I've spent a lot of. Me and Malik and then Dua, our other friend, have spent a lot of time together this week. And the one night, we Malik brought over Mario Party, yes, yes. which he is very good at, and me and Dua are <laughs> fine. Well, yeah, we have to start Learning. somewhere. Yeah, we're <laughs> beginners. But I actually won multiple mini games, yeah. which is a first for me. With flying so. colors. <laughs> Um, so I just want to put that out there. That was super fun. It was a good time. (laughs) Okay. So give it, well, would you like to also give us one piece of advice or is that the advice? Um, that is, I guess that's my non-musical advice. Okay. Um, for my musical advice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which one? There's so many. Okay. I'll give two. Okay. Uh, my musical advice is to... I guess it's kind of in between music and non-music, but be your own person outside of music. Yeah. Uh, what I mean by that is I have many, many friends that, uh, you know, when we're outside of rehearsal or outside of school, you know, where we learn music, all that stuff, they're uh, continuing to listen to, like, classical music to only, to only limit themselves in the classical music world when that's what we do all day anyway. And... That is not, there is nothing wrong with that. You know, classical music is a really beautiful uh, genre of music. You know, I wish more people would be exposed to it, uh, have the relationship with it. 
But I, I want to say that there's so many other forms of music yes. that you miss out, that you limit yourself from. Yeah. Um, if you only subject yourself to classical music, like, and also it just makes you more and more, uh, uh, just well versed and well-rounded, more well rounded. You get to talk to more people about like who your favorite artist is, what your favorite genre, of yes. album. Um, I love this advice. Don't be that person. Don't be that person. <laughs> like, like, don't be the person where only you, the only thing you listen to is classical. I used to go, he might be listening, but I'm going to say it anyway. I used to go to my friend's parties in undergrad wow. and they were really <laughs> They were fun, but he had classical music blaring the whole time. Yeah. And I remember, and it was all music people. And I remember thinking, it's okay if we listen to some pop or something. Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> I love, like, you know, anytime I get in the car with someone who's, like, driving, they put on their music. I love seeing what they, what yeah. they're going to put on. I saw yours and added it on my Spotify right away. Yeah. Kess, right? Yeah, Kess, like, yeah. 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 Um, I love it. I mean, like, you know, everyone has their own... It's kind of, like, linked to their personality, what they will listen yeah. to, like, outside of classical music. Like, what genre... And we're... Uh, sometimes people are kind of shy in sharing, like, what type of music they like to listen to. But to be honest, like, who cares? Like, yeah. if you like it, then... There's so many other people that like it as well. It if you like the high school musical soundtrack... <laughs> Then you know we're all this it. together. Yeah. Uh, so. Was that on purpose? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. yes. No. Agree. And also, um, also, it's re- it can be really fun to play that music too. Mm-hmm. Like it can be fun. I encourage people to like play other genres because there's so much freedom and not having to play something that has to sound a specific way. Mm-hmm. And like, we have to spend a lot of time trying to sound like one particular thing. So maybe also not only listen to that stuff, but maybe get the karaoke version out and yeah. play a lot. Like you can learn different things about your playing too, when you expose yourself to other genres. Mm-hmm. So exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, Give us, give us one, well, is that your practice tip or do you have another practice tip? That's oh, practice a practice tip. Okay. Because that's already a good one is to yeah. just, but. Yeah, it's, it, it's definitely helpful for sure. For practicing, it really just depends on what's, you know, right in front of you. Yeah. But uh, the way I practice, the way I refuse to practice actually <laughs> uh, when I was younger is slowly like I refused to practice slowly because I was always in a rush to learn something. Uh, and you know, after many years, I just discovered that it is just not the way to go. Like you have yeah. to, um, especially with this being my first year out of school, you know, you're not, you know, as you already know, you're not bombarded with like, Oh, running to this lesson or going to this rehearsal or doing this assignment or, you know, being late to something, you always have to do something when you're in school. So sometimes practicing, you can get efficient practice at all times, but like it doesn't feel, it sometimes feel constricting, it feels rushed sometimes, so you feel a little bit unsettled, a little bit uneasy. Mm-hmm. But this being my first year out of school, I have a lot more time just to sit with my instrument. And I don't even practice as much as I did. And uh, when I was, <laughs> when I was uh, doing my master's, and I will tell you that I have improved 
much faster in these few months than I did my entire two years in my master's. Really? Yes, because like I just have much more time to just learn the violin, like learn my relationship with the violin just slowly. You yeah. know, I just I I am I'm learning more about my playing style, what's working, what's not working, um, how you you know how you approach the violin, how you navigate the you know the different parts of the violin or the bow. Uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be many many hours a day. It doesn't need to be six seven hours a day. Yeah. You just need to have just a little bit of time, maybe a few hours, uh, just to slowly and just you know more organically uh, be in touch with you know music. Yeah, you've got to be willing to like be introspective in your practice sessions Mm -hmm. like I feel like a lot of times with me I'll like just want to get stuff done and sometimes that can be good but I feel like for the practice sessions that are the best I let myself slow down and move at my own pace and I'm like processing things slower Mm -hmm. so yeah I totally agree um okay two more one superpower you want to have. Oh my god. Which superpower? <laughs> Someone asked me this not too long ago, actually. And oh. I, don't, I, I felt like I gave a boring answer. Oh, you've had time to think. Yeah. Um, I think I would want to time travel. Yeah. I would like, and I don't know if that's a superpower, but I would but does definitely. Does time exist? Yeah. Well, does time no. exist? As our, as our good friend Marcel would tell us, time doesn't actually exist. Shout out to Marcel. Um, I love that though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just there's. there's Where are you going? I don't know. There's there's sometimes I was you know I would I would go back to like like yesterday like I definitely didn't need to buy like that meal at McDonald's <laughs> like that was so unnecessary tra- like it gave like it gave me food poisoning like I gained five pounds it's, it was unnecessary <laughs> but like you know there's there's things that I would I would tell my younger self yeah. uh, as well like it will be okay like yes. you know you will you will find a way to cuz I, I when i was younger i was just i was petrified that i would never fit into this career actually mm. um but like so i was kind of like on you know times 10 like yeah. just trying to kind of uh, anxious just trying to like fit myself in and like you know i would just tell myself it it will literally be okay just yeah. have fun while you're going through this process i completely yeah um of course some, for some other things but i would definitely tra- time travel if i could so mostly for to talk to yourself yeah yeah there would be a lot of things i would change like you know um yeah. you know maybe uh my uh friends that i had or just like you know kind of how i um you know how just uh, my relationship with my family and just like everyone, everyone like that, you know, it's just some things, everyone wishes they can change some things. So it, this isn't a unique thing to want to do, but like, you know, there's some things I wish I could change in the past, um, that might make, you know, that might've just made growing up more enjoyable. Yeah. So. But here you are a result of all of the choices, you know, Yeah, here we are. Yeah. I mean, life is not too bad right yeah. now. So I have like, you know, great friends you know and i'm loving where i am i love being in columbus uh for the symphony so you know i can't complain at yeah. all right now so i think if i'm time traveling i'm going to like dinosaur times really that's yeah. what you said time travel that's what would you I tell the dinosaurs them. i don't know don't eat me don't eat me please <laughs> okay um 
And the last one is the next place you would love to travel. If it could be mm. anywhere. If if there were no, like, money is not a restriction. Or, like, no, no time is not a restriction. I, I've never been to Africa. I've been wanting oh. to go to Africa for, for many, many years. Africa is so expensive to fly to, no matter the country. Um, yeah. But, you know, there's so many, you know... Uh, countries to visit, you know, Nigeria, Kenya, yeah. uh, South Africa, like, you know, you, you can go so many places, but I've never been, you know, I've been, been wanting to go for many, many years, but just have not had the, <laughs> or been willing to spend the money to, to do so. Something a little bit closer, I would go, uh, I guess I would go to New Orleans. Mm, uh, I've never been yeah. there. Um, and I would definitely go back to Montreal for sure. Yeah. So it's that's a hard question for someone asked me that, and I was like, "There's so many places I want to go. Mm-hmm. That's hard." Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, there's different cultures. There's just different food that you can try. And yeah, food's a big one for me. Yeah, that's why I'm going to Japan. Oh, it's so good. That hibachi. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well. You. Yeah, thanks for having me. This My is awesome. My first guest on Serapy. <laughs> yes, I'm it was honored. Fun. So. All right. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm.